So I want this morning to explore a theme which we don't explore very much in our meetings in the morning and which you'll seldom hear talked about on retreats. This is the area of ethics, which again, surprisingly, is not taught about so much. I think it's partly because in West, in the Western reception of Buddhism, the focus has been so much on meditation that we don't uh, always look to uh, the ethical dimension as a core dimension of practice. In the Asian context, there is very clear traditional understanding that there are three main areas of training. One is ethics, which is more or less how one acts, particularly in relationship to others, to the communities one's part of. Uh, And the essence of it is non-harming. And more positively said, caring for others. Okay. Uh, and the second area could be generally thought to be the area of meditation and inner development. And the third area is wisdom. And in the West, we've especially focused on meditation, understandably, because when you look historically at Western religious traditions, the contemplative dimensions of those traditions have been marginalized roughly in the last uh, 400 to 1,000 years. (laughs) And people have been hungry. Not that you can't find them, but they wouldn't be easily found 50 years ago at churches and synagogues and mosques and so forth. You wouldn't find that. And so understandable that people have been hungry for meditation, but there have been some distortions, and we don't have necessarily a rounded sense of practice. So if people uh, are asked, how's your spiritual practice going? People may think about meditation, right? And so again, traditionally, the ethical dimension was was very, very fundamental. And and part of my motivation for uh, exploring ethical practice is having just come from Washington, (laughs) D.C., <laughs> and I actually stayed for this was a, we we were there for my aunt Judy's 90th birthday. There was a lot of ethics there, a lot of care, and uh, but I uh, we stayed uh, downtown, about three blocks from the White House, which is also right near the National Mall. And I I went to a number of museums, including the African American History and Culture Museum, where I went to twice, uh, Museum of the American Indian, the Holocaust Museum, and so forth, and as well as art museums and so. Uh, but it was um, it was very much uh, on my mind what was happening. I actually met people who were, you know, there were demonstrations not far from where I was in front of some of the, like, Homeland Security buildings and so forth. So um, it was certainly on my mind. And I think it's fair to say that the country is in the midst of a uh, profound moral crisis, really about, we could say, the nature of its ethical bearing, we could say even its soul. You know, and the you know the Supreme Court decisions uh, definitely echo past decisions like you know past decisions like uh, Dred Scott in 1857, or the uh, Supreme Court decision which said that the uh, internment of Japanese was okay. Uh, not long after that decision, and it, and the basis was, I think, parallel to yesterday's decision, arguably on fairly sham national security grounds. And they actually acknowledged uh, sometime after the decision on Japanese internment that they actually had internal government documents which acknowledged that there were no national security grounds. That was all purposeful sham, right? 
that, that's documented in terms of Japanese internment. You know, when the Supreme Court um, was on the other side, right? Uh, and so, um, so I thought it could be very helpful and it'd be also in line with uh, exploring next week whatever we explore on the 4th of July, which will be related, I think, in some ways, to actually focus on ethical practice in multiple dimensions. And so what I want to point us towards and really urge us to uh, work with in the next week, very concretely, I'll be pointing to five aspects of ethical practice that we can uh, work with, ranging from the inner practice of just cultivating non-harming moment-to-moment and caring in various ways to the social dimension. And so that's what I want to explore today. And again, the uh, direction of the morning will be to point towards our own practice, be practical, pointing to what we can bring into our lives on multiple, in multiple ways. Again, traditionally, the ethical dimension of practice was completely central, again, in part because uh, from the beginning of the teachings of the Buddha, they were designed for people living in community. And so there was a very strong ethical dimension. And some of you know, we know that for monks and nuns, traditionally, there were over 200 ethical guidelines. For, for lay people, they were simplified to five, <laughs> which is helpful. And in, in essence, I'm going to simplify them to one, which is non-harming slash caring. Because <laughs> they all come down to uh, not harming others, which again, that's said more negatively, more positively developing care, kindness, compassion. Okay. And so, the, as many of you know, the, there are five lay guidelines, which we, at the beginning of retreats, we typically take them. And those are, again, they're variants of non-harming. The first is explicitly not to harm especially not to take the life of a, of a living being. The second is not to take that which is not given. The uh, third is to be very careful with sexual energy. The fourth is to be very careful with the energy of speech and communication. And the fifth is to be very careful you know, and wise with substances which shift consciousness. You know, Traditionally, it's expressed as uh, the usual translation would be intoxicants which lead to heedlessness. And this, these are all interpreted in somewhat different ways depending on whether one is a monastic or not. You know. But uh, generally the guideline to be skillful, careful, and so forth. And I'm going to especially focus on the first which is more explicitly uh, non-harming. And we could say that, again, uh, in English... Words like uh, even ethical and moral sometimes for some people have uh, some, even some negative connotations. We talk of people being moralistic. I think because perhaps because some of our backgrounds may have, ha- may have had the installation of moral rules as almost like authoritarian commands that if you don't obey you'll be punished. Right, And so there's there are different ways of interpreting or that you know, you'll be struck down by lightning or something like that. And the, the spirit of the guidelines in the Buddhist tradition is that they're for the purposes of training. And they are really about one's own integrity and the movement towards greater integrity. That's what they're... So I think integrity is a word that actually doesn't have some of those other connotations. Some may prefer that. But for, you know, even I think in my experience, being ethical had a different connotation than being moral. Moral, a little bit tight. Ethical, a little more open. I don't know if that is the same way for you. Um, but in any case, the understanding of the guidelines is that there are training guidelines, and we understand that in small and sometimes moderate or large ways, 
we go against the precepts. You know, we know that we um, hurt other small living beings quite often, often without knowledge. The guideline is especially about not intentionally causing harm. We know that we cause harm in various ways to small beings. You know, we know, uh, although we probably don't think about it so much, that we cause harm in coming by automobiles that burn fossil fuels. We know that that is contributing to harm, right? And so we're all, in a way, none of us is pure. And we're trying, we're, we're working with uh, moral issues all the time. You know, I remember there was an interview with the uh, poet uh, Gary Snyder. Let me see if I have this quote. He, he, he spoke about this. It's kind of like an ongoing inquiry. How can I keep my own integrity? Knowing that I'm not perfect or that we're all in some ways complicit, right? How can I, how can I nonetheless uh, take ethics as a form of practice? So Gary Snyder said, I'd like to go back to the most basic Buddhist precept, which is ahimsa or non-harming. It's my understanding that this precept is applied to all beings. Some would say that this includes even insentient beings meaning like trees or ecosystems, right? And there's a lively inquiry into that dimension of ethics that that probably many of you are familiar with. He says, this makes for very good meditation, searching kind of examination. How to practice non-harming is a profound and wonderful question I'll be working on until I die. That really is the spirit of the practice, right? So the Buddha said, one who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. And we maybe can bring to mind who are the beings that we look to as ethical exemplars? Who comes to mind for you? Huh? The Dalai Lama. Dr. King. Gandhi, what? Mother Teresa, Desmond Tutu. Interestingly, yeah. (laughs) Mr. Rogers. Okay, yeah. And interestingly, I don't. You know, all these, including Mr. Rogers, had large social impact. Right? But uh, the ones that mostly that were named were ones who had a spiritual grounding and contributed to the core moral crises of their, of their times, right? That's interesting, isn't it? That, that those are the exemplars that came to mind. Rosa Parks, yeah. Yeah. What? Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. It was very interesting to be at, I went to the Holocaust Museum just actually exactly a week ago and there had a special exhibit on the U.S. response to the Holocaust, which was uh, not great, right? And they documented that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt often spoke out against the policies enacted by her husband. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Um, and actually, you know, some of the stuff is shocking that the the State Department was in favor of very strict immigration. And they actually actively minimized in 1942 and 43 uh, information about the extent of the Holocaust. The State Department. That's documented, right? That's, anyway, so we have a history of the government and morality not always being aligned. So... Um, And yet these ethical precepts can really be the guide, again, if they're taken as very, very important part of our practice so that we actually let ourselves be guided day to day. How do I practice non-harming? How do I respond to harming? As a a guiding question, not easy questions, right? They're challenging, you know. Most of us are probably not clear on how to respond or am I doing enough? And those questions I hear a lot, right? But I think having the questions there in our being is good. They, 
they uh, start to boil, in a sense. It's said in the tradition that keeping the ethical precepts is like seeing the light of fire of a fire in a dark place. It's like a poor person finding a jewel. It's like a prisoner being released. It's like returning home. So very strong statements. Another passage from the Buddha, not to commit evil, but to practice all good and to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Not to commit evil, not to commit what was wrong, to practice all good, to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And it's also very much about uh, the non precept on non-harming is also very much about uh, creating the conditions of safety. It's, it's often understood in that way, that one creates the conditions of safety, which both permit uh, outer safety for oneself and others, and create a kind of inner safety where we are being ethical, and it's that inner safety which makes possible the deepening of spiritual practice. Without being ethical, we actually can't go too deeply because the, our mind and our being are, there's turmoil where we're not in alignment. Um, Thomas Merton had a very beautiful passage where he says, the deep inner self is like uh, a very shy wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is peaceful, when there is silence, when one is untroubled and alone. The, that inner self responds to no lore except the divine lore of freedom. So there's that sense of needing safety. <clears throat> And yet, again, I'll say a few things. For, for different reasons, our practice has often not emphasized the ethical dimension. Again, I think somewhat understandably because of the pull of meditation and the power of meditation. Again, I think it's most emphasized at Spirit Rock. You know, we have, you know, the, really the focus is especially on retreats. And we have some reference to the ethical guidelines, but we don't really strongly develop a sense of ethical practice. I think that's true in many of the various Western centers of Buddhist practice, again, for for different reasons. And it's also interesting that when one of the dangers of the so-called secular mindfulness movement which I think is doing some good things, but one thing that can be problematic is when mindfulness gets stripped and from the larger context. And we just teach mindfulness without connecting it to ethics or to wisdom. You know, these three areas of training, ethics, meditation, and wisdom, are all especially understood to be mutually informing each other. So that meditation is crucial for ethics, as we'll see in a while, because if we find ourselves acting in certain ways, we want to look what's there, what's in our minds, what's going on. And we need mindfulness for that. And similarly, uh, to really develop mindfulness, we need to be ethical. There's actually a term in the Buddhist teachings which can be translated as wrong mindfulness. Mindfulness without connection to ethics can be very clear. A burglar can be deeply mindful. And there's actually a term for that in the traditional teachings. That there is such a thing as wrong mindfulness precisely when it gets disconnected from the rest of the Eightfold Path, from the rest of the model of training. And that's happening some. I remember talking to a person who... Uh, a teacher who taught mindfulness in corporate settings. And I asked this person, how do you bring in ethics when you're teaching mindfulness in corporate settings? And the response was, huh? 
right? So it's a danger, right? It's a danger of what's happening. Um, And it's happened in other traditions. Uh, You know, meditation has sometimes been used with very unjust governments. In Japan, the first half of the 20th century, much of Zen Buddhism was aligned with Japanese fascism. And you had Zen teachers giving speeches to the military. I remember there was one, in one talk, one of the Zen teachers said, I may not be remembering this exactly, when you walk, walk, when you shoot, shoot. Bang, bang. I was a Zen teacher, and I've been present at, uh, I've been present in Asia at ceremonies where Zen masters, I think the one I attended was about, you know, was in the 1990s, where Zen teachers apologized for what the Zen establishment did in the first half of the 20th century. And there was a disconnection of ethics from meditation to some extent. And the person who I heard apologizing basically said that. We lost our ethical bearings. So that happens, right? That can happen. So again, ethical practice, really, really uh, crucial. Non-harming is really the center of the uh, of our ethical practice. In fact, uh, you find passages where it's said to be completely at the core of what how we transform ourselves. One passage, non-harming, is the distinguishing mark of the Dhamma or the Dharma. Non-harming is at the center of things. Again, it's to develop oneself to the point where harming another would be as unnatural as the left hand harming the right hand. That's the direction of practice. Where, and again, the other side of non-harming is developing uh, kindness and care. There's an emphasis in the traditional teachings on intention and especially not harming intentionally, recognizing that we sometimes harm unintentionally, that we can later come back and look at that and make corrections. In the teachings, the practice of non-harming was brought to all beings. All living beings, all... There are debates again whether it's sentient beings or also non-sentient beings, the Buddha. One must hate, not hate any being and cannot kill a living creature even in thought. Laying aside violence in respect of all beings, both those which are still and those which move, one should not kill a living creature, nor cause to kill, nor approve of others killing. So you see in those last two passages, there starts to be a social dimension. Not to cause others to kill, nor to approve of others killing. I think that was, to me, I interpret that as uh, elements of a social sense. One must abandon the onslaught on breathing beings. One abstains from this without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. That's the direction of the practice, right? Right? And it also, you know, very much relates to the um, teachings on nonviolence, which have, you know, directly come down from India through um, some, a very strange passageway through Henry David Thoreau, who, who influenced Gandhi, who influenced Kings. You know that history? It's a pretty interesting history. Gandhi especially learned from Henry David Thoreau, you know, at Walden Pond. Um, practicing civil disobedience in terms of what's called the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And that influenced Gandhi. Gandhi just didn't get it directly from India. He got it from Walden Pond. 
<laughs> so pretty interesting. So again, we find that social dimension uh, where, where, which in the passages I mentioned, and in contemporary times, that's been brought out pretty fully. People like Thich Nhat Hanh, especially, many of you know, the Vietnamese teacher, who developed what's sometimes called engaged Buddhism in the crucible of Vietnam in the 1950s and 1960s. He said, this is his restatement of the guideline of non-harming. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. So he, makes, he brings it more explicitly into the social dimension, saying that to follow this precept is also to be concerned about what others are doing. He says, we cannot, any, we cannot support any act of killing, but not to kill personally is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. He says, if you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. I did not. If you did not say or doing anything to try to stop the killing, you were not practicing this precept. That's hard. You know, that's, that's a challenging precept, right? What do you do when there's harm being done in one's name? You know, as a citizen in a, you know, at least on surface dem- democratic country. And so again, I was thinking about this being in Washington. And I mentioned being at the Holocaust Museum and seeing how, you know, basic ethical um, pointers towards non-harming were eclipsed by actually by government policy to minimize immigration and to have very strict immigration and actually to um, not public deliberately not publicize information about the extent of the Holocaust. Very pretty shocking. Or going to the um, going to the African American History and Culture Museum, and when you're there, I haven't anyone been there. Yeah, several of you. Maybe you had similar experience, but one of the striking things is just seeing through the extensive historical documentation how leader after leader rationalized unethical behavior. Person after person, you know, from, you know, who would call themselves Christian and so forth. And, and the, you know, basically seemed to rationalize unethical behavior for the purposes of power, property, and um, I don't know, just uh, yeah, being able to get, get what they wanted in other ways. And so you see that oh, throughout the history. One of the facts that I did not know was that the original Declaration of Independence, remember the Declaration of Independence? What's it say? All men are created equal. I mean, aside from the gender issues there, but um, but that was in the Declaration of Independence. And what I didn't know so well was that uh, the original draft of the Declaration of Independence by Jefferson, who I think had, I think it was, he had over 400 slaves, right? As many of you know, including some of which were his offspring. <laughs> Um, and Jefferson put in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence uh, statements basically uh, supporting uh, the rights to have slave auctions. It was in the original draft, and his fellow um, conveners must have said, that makes the contradiction between the first words just too striking, and they took those words out, supporting slavery. (laughs) but they were actually there in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. And you find that throughout the history, whether it's you know, through slavery times or Jim Crow or I think up to the present times, but especially striking in you know, th- through slavery and Jim Crow, 
that politician after politician seemed to find ways to, you know, I think ordinary citizens as well, to rationalize being unethical. And they seemed to know it was unethical, but they, they nonetheless acted. There's a line from the uh, philosopher Walter Benjamin, some of you may know his name, who was a German-Jewish uh, philosopher who, was, uh, who died uh, as a result of the Holocaust. He said, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. Quite a, quite a statement. And so there's this, uh, you know, from a lot of contemporary Buddhist uh, teachers, this wanting to have the ethical guideline on non-harming also reach to the social dimension. Uh, Robert Aitken Roshi, who, who died in his 90s a number of years ago, who was a Zen teacher who, who I knew pretty well, he, uh, who was one of the co-founders of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, he said that to follow the first precept requir- requires one to question and act against all forms of socially legitimated violence, from stockpiling nuclear weapons to environmental degradation and the killing of animals. He said, if you follow the first precept, you need to go in that direction. And other teachers very similarly. So how to practice? I'll, I'll take the rest of the talk suggesting uh, five, five ways of practicing with the uh, uh, guideline on non-harming. And I, I want to invite all of us, including myself, to practice non-harming as much as possible. And I say this to myself, having had a dream last night which was an interesting, strange dream in which I went down into the basement and got a sword and was trying to kill a monster. Anyone else have monsters in your basement? (laughs) So you can, during the discussion period, any of you psychologists can can work with me on that. But, but there I was. You know, so you know, one way to say that is we all have the tendencies towards harming in us. Because the roots of harming, from Buddhist perspective, are in greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? They're from wanting. They're from uh, animus against others. They're from a certain delusion in which we think we're separate. And so we all have that in ourselves. And I know certainly in my own practice, at certain times I've seen myself capable of killing another human being. I've seen that in my mind, which is shocking, but it's good to know. (laughs) And so we all have that. So I think my attempt to kill monsters was not shocking. (laughs) Okay. A really interesting dream. Okay. Um, so, uh, five ways of practicing non-harming that, are, um, that I'll ask us to work with. The first is working with intention. And this is to, maybe every morning, remember to go in that direction. And working with intention is a crucial part of our practice. It's really reminding us, put, put non-harming on your refrigerator, you know, on your dashboard, on your screensaver, right? Uh, remember, the, in whatever way works for you, that non-harming might be a focus, let's say, in the next week. What would help you to do that? What would help you to really keep that in mind and let it guide you? So that's number one. Number two is to let that intention guide your outer behavior to really intend not to harm any being, including oneself. So non-harming applies also to oneself. And to really have that strong intention not to harm. And then that's related to the third aspect of practice, which is to bring in mindfulness when you seem to be 
either violating the guideline of non-harming or um, going into what we sometimes call a gray area where you're in a murky area, you're not sure that you're going against the guideline. One of my good friends sometimes begins uh, what um, interesting or controversial discussions with me by saying, I'm not sure if I'm following the guideline on skillful speech, but... (laughs) So, uh, there are, again, what we could call gray areas or murky areas or areas where it's not clear. And there we want to bring mindfulness. You can sometimes stop on the spot and say, what's going on? What's my motivation? What's going on with me? Or when you find yourself just even having a, a thought that might be going towards harming... And again, harming isn't just about um, physical harming. It can be the verbal dimension that's involved. I'm very much judgmental, blaming of another or myself. And that would come under, I think that comes under the guideline of, of uh, non-harming. You know, so to see, just to, and really just to, the third way of practicing is really connected with this deep, uh, commitment to inquiry. What's there? And this is, again, this is really bringing in some of the meditative dimensions. What's really there in my mind and heart uh, in general, but especially when I seem to go into the territory of harming myself or another? So that, again, really to have that spirit of inquiry without... Um, yeah, without um, prejudging what you'll find and being open to seeing how there is, we all have that material that can be connected with harming or being complicit with harming. What's that about? Again, the, the invitation is to inquire and then come back and hopefully you can come next week and we can talk about it together. Talk about what you, found, you find. <clears throat> and the fourth way of practicing, again, the first, cultivating intention, The second, letting that intention guide one's everyday outer behavior, uh, more in terms of face-to-face interactions, how you are with yourself and so forth. The third is bringing in the meditative dimension, mindfulness, really looking carefully at what you find, and particularly when something comes up. And the fourth is really bringing in the other side of uh, the seeing the tendencies towards harming and practicing non-harming. And this is practicing care and compassion. And so this can be, <clears throat> this can be expressed in a few different ways. It can be expressed through a dedication, maybe in the next week, to a heart practice which brings more kindness into your being. Loving kindness practice or compassion practice. And to make, to really dedicate oneself to um, cultivating that quality of care. So it can be more of an inner practice, or it could be that you say, I want to every day do three actions which are caring, at least three actions, you know, in, in whatever way that manifests, you know, being with someone who is in distress or ill or um, helping in some way, you know, and could be more than three, but three is a good starting point, right? And so to really commit to acting in that way, that could be an expression of care and compassion. And to have that be something that's on one's mind daily is a way of practice, practicing And then the fifth area is a large area. This would be, how do I bring my ethical practice to the larger social world? And some some of us here are doing that in small or larger ways, right? And to continue with that. But how does one do this? You know, how does one... It was, again, very interesting uh, being at the Holocaust Museum, we're actually being also at the African American History and Culture Museum and seeing that 
throughout those histories, there were beings who had very strong ethical practice and were somehow not willing to be on the sidelines and wanting to really act in, in very full ways, whether it was, you know, whether it was um, African-Americans or free African-Americans, you know, studying the history of uh, Harriet Tubman with the Underground Railroad or William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist leader and so forth. But just to see that there have been people who felt that to stay with their own ethical integrity required them to step up more. And I think many of us may feel that, but maybe not know so much what to do. How many people feel like you'd like to move in that direction, but are not sure how to act? I think that's probably, that's, it's there. So partly, you know, partly we can help each other by clarifying possible forms of action, right? Um, so it was interesting to see that people, and sometimes people spoke in terms of just following basic human decency. They spoke in those, what do you do in extreme situations? You know, there was, I, at the Holocaust Museum, I heard um, there was a, um, a speaker who, who had been a survivor of the Holocaust, who was actually a, a baby and young child, born in Holland in uh, 1941. And his parents decided to split up to ensure that at least some would survive. His father did not survive. Two sisters were placed in a, another family's home and they were, they were eventually betrayed by someone in that household and died in Auschwitz you know, six and eight-year-old girls. And this, this man, though, was protected by an Indonesian family and survived. And again, person after person spoke about just keeping basic human, human decency, but it's also a question, what do you do in extreme or somewhat extreme times? You know, I, I think of there's uh, four questions from uh, the, the great African-American um, activist and thinker W.E.B. Du Bois. He says, he said this, and he wrote a novel when he was in his uh, late 80s. In fact, he wrote three novels. And uh, it reminds me, do you, do you, did you read about Lawrence Ferlinghetti? At age 98, the poet <clears throat> from San Francisco, he completed a novel at age, at age 98. So, W.E.D. Du Bois was doing something similar, and in one of his novels, he posed four questions. How does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? And these were almost like Zen koans. You can't answer them directly, but you can live with them, and they kind of energize you and are not easy. So how do we work with that? You know, how do we, what's, how do I feel called to respond to what's happening? And I think for, in terms of a form of practice, I'll invite us to maybe, again, one way of practicing is to either act in ways that seem suitable to you, or if you're not sure how to act, take it as a reflection that you do five or ten minutes every day, just for the next week. So I'm inviting some significant practice next week, right? I'm inviting that. Reflect on that. Let it be there for you. How, given my gifts, my interests, my available time and energy, do I feel called? And maybe that might require... um, some searching for options, gathering information and so forth. I think I want to finish and then we'll open it up to discussion by having us, if we wish, take on these five ethical precepts at least for the next week, but possibly longer if you wish. Okay? So I will repeat these in English 
And I'll pause and invite you to just reflect on how you might take each of them. And we'll have a focus, especially the next week, on the first guideline. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. That's non-harming. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to practice skillful speech. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. And so especially focusing on the first precept of non-harming, again, to set that intention to work with hopefully all five of these dimensions. First, just bringing in that intention day to day so you remember to go in this direction. Number two, letting that guide you in your day-to-day outward behavior and interactions. Number three, bringing in mindfulness and inquiry uh, to see what's there, particularly when there's some way that there are tendencies to harm that appear. Fourthly, cultivating care and compassion, kindness in some way on a regular basis every day. And then fifth, acting in terms of the social dimension. Again, either acting in ways that you know or at least reflecting. And if all five feel like too much, do at least two. Okay, Okay. so we thank you for your kind attention. And we have, uh, we have some time for uh, discussion, questions, observations, even sharing of your own experience. Okay, so we... Back to the <clears throat> Japanese Zen masters who <clears throat> claimed they had lost moral bearing. How did they... Restore it. Find it. So how do the Zen teachers restore it? Um, well, I, um, I can just know some of it because I'm, I'm not in that tradition or lineage. I think they felt that apologies were very, public apologies were very important. Acknowledging the, as it were, what they would call the mistakes of the past were quite important. Uh, I think for some of them, it would be to have ethical practice be more prominent in their practice. Uh, so those, those would be the main ones that occur to me. Again, I'm not in that tradition, so I, I know it somewhat from a distance. But I know that, you know, just for example, you know, I, I, I worked for a lot of years with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and uh, it was almost exclusively... Um, guided by people from the Zen tradition. For a long time, with the exception over the years I was connected with it, of myself, Diana Winston, and Temple Smith, the, uh, the leadership was almost entirely from the Zen tradition, for what that's worth. And it's been Zen teachers who've actually sometimes been more active in the last 30 years than uh, than people from the insight tradition, you know, connected with Spirit Rock, 
Buddhist Peace Fellowship was founded by Zen practitioners. Interesting. So, um, I know I have curiosity about this issue. I'm not sure why. Yeah. But just as um, mindfulness can be allied with fascism, as you pointed it out. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, I've, I've been wondering if the other side of it, um, not the other side, but the, the do-no-harm value can be allied with the other side of the political, political spectrum as well. Is, there, is it possible to be on that side and have non-do-no-harm, you think? It seems like every, the more the value of non-harming is embraced, the more you move to one end of the political spectrum. But can it, can it live on the other side too? Mm. Can, um, can one be a fierce advocate of non-harming and be a Japanese fascist or on the, uh, the right-hand spectrum of contemporary U.S. political discourse? Um, I don't know that a response to that from personal experience. The, um, all, the, all the people that we mentioned as ethical exemplars, tended, everyone we mentioned tended to be more on the, um, the left or progressive side, every, every figure we mentioned. I, you know, I know that, um, I know, so I, I don't know from personal experience of actually having long discussions with people who were more on the other side of the political spectrum who themselves represented very strong commitment to non-harming. I don't know that. I imagine that it's possible in this country. I mean, again, I don't know. I haven't looked real carefully at what are sometimes called compassionate conservatives in this country. And my guess is that um, it's probably um, selective. The care and the compassion is probably somewhat selective. And not... um, the people like um, Gandhi and King or Dorothy Day tended to have a universal ethical guideline, even if they themselves sometimes imperfectly applied it, right? As we know from their biographies. Although I don't know that for Dorothy Day, I know it for King and Gandhi. Um, so I don't, I don't have a full response. Maybe someone else does, but I would imagine um, I have met. I have met people who are um, very clearly conservative who I think were very caring individuals. Yeah. A lot of hands, so. (laughs) Okay, maybe on this side and we'll move to the front. I I have read psychological profiles that show that people on the left have a tendency towards compassion more than people on the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, this is this is maybe kind of silly, but this okay. is, I'm stuck at number one. Yeah. Um, this is personal and practical. How do I move ahead when I'm not a vegetarian? <laughs> Okay, how do I move ahead when I'm not a vegetarian? I'm really wrestling with this. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's just great to um, sit with moral issues, sit with ethical issues without, again, let it, you know, any change needs to come from inside and needs to really resonate with your being. And do you have, um, do you, you yourself have questions about... Uh, not being vegetarian or eating meat? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm stymied at number one. That's pretty basic. It's, it's harming another being. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, definitely. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so you have a clear sense that it's, it's a form of harming. And uh, when we bring the mic back, uh, Lyle, 
Is it uh, necessary from a health point of view? No. No, not necessarily. I mean, okay. You know, I, I'm conscientious about what I eat. Um, yeah. But it's... it's, uh, it's so I think it is, it is great to look into. It's a dimension of harming that, given our society, in some societies, it wouldn't be an easy choice, right? In some cultures, some societies, it would not be an easy choice just about what's available as food. We have a lot of choices, and if it's not necessary from a health or physical perspective, as it is for some people, then it's something really to look at because um, it is a form of harming. And it's a form of harming both in terms of the animals, and there's also, some of you know, probably many of you know, that... uh, at least the claim has been made that as much as 50% of greenhouse gases are related to the raising of animals for food. So it's very significant in that dimension. And that, you know, when you looked, I think uh, uh, there, were, there was a recent uh, uh, very good book by Paul Hawken called Drawdown, which gives a hundred ways of responding to climate crisis. Um, one of which is that if if there was a very large-scale shift to vegetarianism, uh, it would have a major, major impact on climate issues. Um, That being said, um, go to a good bookstore and look at some good vegetarian cookbooks. Because I've been a vegetarian since I first thought about it, which was when I was 19 years old. You know, and it's uh, maybe 18. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. I, you know, I I once taught, uh, some of you know, I once taught in the philosophy department at the University of Kentucky. And I used to teach especially ethics classes. I was assigned them to teach ethics classes and I would have, I would include as part of my ethics discussion, I would talk with, you know, 18, 19 year olds, especially from Eastern Kentucky about, uh, about uh, uh, vegetarianism and they loved to discuss it. It was very, very interesting. You know, we had these long discussions about, you know, you had these guys who were kind of in a macho mold, right? And they were, and, and I, I actually saw that uh, one of the interesting things about that teaching was that I had people do uh, keep journal writing that they handed in to me, which no one else saw. And I saw a lot of people who publicly were making fun of vegetarianism, saying, you know, what are they, what's going to happen to all the cows? You know, they would talk like that. But in their journals, they were seriously looking at it. That was really interesting. Yeah. So I think just have it be something of, of inquiry. And it really has to be about your own integrity. Yeah, thank you. There's no rush. Okay. Uh, Please, yeah. One thing that I think about, particularly um, around this ethical non-harming issue with the Buddhist tradition, is are your thoughts um, the whole issue of the uh, Rohingya Mm -hmm. uh, within the community, the uh, a Buddhist community, and it, it just seems it's such odds yeah, yeah. with what um, Buddhism stands for. So, could you? Yeah. Help so the whole question that? of the uh, Burmese government, the government of Myanmar, uh, purportedly a Buddhist country, although it's you know it's been a largely a dictatorship since 1962. And how does that square? And you, you didn't mention uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, but you could have. And, you know, how does someone who was praised for being almost like in the mold of Gandhi and King and who has uh, not spoken out publicly against that? And that's, that may be, you know, that may be a little more complex. I don't know. I don't know the full answer to that. My my guess is that she thinks that if she did, she would just be suppressed, possibly killed, and I don't know. But um, 
But there are pretty long-standing uh, ethnic conflicts in Burma, and this fits in that mold. And uh, I once did a, uh, I once published an essay in which this was this was a while ago in which I surveyed the history of so-called Buddhist countries and their relationships to non-harming and violence. And what I found was that largely the governments of Buddhist countries uh, did not seem to be at at certain times very influenced by the precept of non-harming. So I looked back in history, but you look back in history, you can find Burma and Thailand fighting wars against each other. You can find people, um, again, largely rulers, uh, committing acts of violence. So it does not square. And it's similar to how you can have that occur in Japan and have the Zen establishment support Japanese wars of aggression in the first half of the 20th century. So it doesn't square. And, you know, the explanation that I found, you know, uh, first of all, we have to imagine that the people in the government were not necessarily practitioners because you can find something like deep aspirations towards nonviolence in Christianity, right? You can find that there. Leaders who call themselves Christians. So what's, you know, in Western countries, so what's going on, right? I think it's not all that different in the Buddhist countries. They're not necessarily practitioners, let alone deep practitioners. And one other detail was, uh, unlike in Christianity, There's no uh, doctrine of just war or there's no doctrine uh, justifying the violence of governments. Uh, You do find that in Christianity, at least in later theology, you know, and you don't have that in Buddhism. In Buddhism, because there was no, uh, there were no teachings uh, guiding governments, Buddhist countries the, the rulers were, to a large extent, uh, guided by Hindu teachings. You look at countries like Burma or Thailand, they actually, there was, there was not, no Buddhist guidance on how to be a ruler. And so, you know, that's maybe a lack in Buddhism. So these are some of the reasons, but uh, I don't know if that's a full explanation. And I have yet to hear a really clear and full explanation of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, but it is... It is uh, it is a really important question to ask, right? Like what's going on? So it's partly the fact that Buddhism in its strengths has largely been a monastic tradition. That's, uh, which is both a strength and a weakness. Yeah. Maybe last one, but I'll probably, I'll be just brief with this. I was wondering how this would fit in with the situation, I guess yesterday or the day before where, the re- restaurant refused to serve Sarah Sanders. <laughs> and because the help, the uh, employees complained, and then the owner came and decided to have her party leave the restaurant. Yeah. And so there's been... So how does that square with non-harming? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. A small and easy question with which to finish <laughs> finish the morning. Um, does anyone know whether what that restaurant did is against the law? What? No, that that a restaurant can refuse to serve people. Is that right? That that seems a little. Yeah. Yeah, so so uh, my gut feeling was that it sort of must have, you know, um, it's, uh, that it boiled up over frustration and lack of clarity about how to act. And that it's probably, my, my sense is that from a strategic point of view, it's not a great thing to do. That's strategically, because it makes the people who are actually victimizing, makes them into victims. On a, on a public level, um, but it's understandable. You know, I think, um, yeah, it's. 
I haven't I haven't thought it out more fully. I, I was interested in in, leg, in the legality of it, um, but again, I think it comes out of uh, some frustration, anger, and and also not knowing what else to do because it's connected with other people uh, harassing or you know saying shame in restaurants with some of the other uh, people. So. Um, what would Dr. King have done in that situation? I think there would have been a, a little more skillful action to make the points. That's my gut feeling. That is not strategically uh, helpful and that it's probably, and is it, uh, is in, where, you know, what's the motivation? Where is it coming from? Are there ways to speak up without, in a sense, even in a minor way, harming someone else? That the where I would tend to come from, but I'm open to inquiring further. Okay, so we'll finish. I'll just remind us of those five ways of practicing. First, just maybe just for a few minutes every morning, remembering your intention to practice non-harming. Maybe bringing in at other times during the day have it be there in a way which helps you keep, the, keep aware of this as something to guide you in the next week. Secondly, let it guide you in your outer uh, interactions, behavior, being with others, but also with yourself, and to commit to non-harming. Thirdly, to engage in mindfulness and looking more deeply when something comes up, when you find yourself in some way harming. Fourthly, to practice caring in one or more ways, cultivating inner kindness, compassion as an inner practice, also committing to acting with care more outwardly each day in in one or two or three ways. And then lastly, in some ways, seeing how you want to respond to the larger social moral crisis. It could be reflection, but commit to that, at least five or 10 minutes of reflection, or it could be acting in some ways. All of this, a commitment to the first precept on non-harming, but also a commitment to inquiring and deepening one's practice. And may our mourning be for the benefit of all beings, which includes us, includes all beings. So thank you for your practice and your attention and to be continued. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.